Hello and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Erin Dean and this episode is going to focus on end-of-life care for people from diverse communities. Everyone deserves care that works for them at the end of their lives and there is only one chance to get it right. But charity Marie Curie has warned that for many people from ethnic minority communities this is often not the case. In this episode we're going to look at what are the barriers to good end-of-life care, talk about the challenges in this area and find out how nurses can improve care. I'm joined by Rekha Vijay Shankar, a research and clinical nurse, and Rini Jones, Senior Policy and Research Manager for Equity and Equality. They are both from Marie Curie, a leading end-of-life charity. Thank you both so much for joining me today to talk about this important area. Thanks for having us. Thanks Thanks. for having us. So, Rekha, we've spoken before and you told me about how you came to nursing um, after a relative received end-of-life care. For you, um, this was um, a a real turning point um, and started a whole new career. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about that experience and and what what it changed for you. Thank you for asking that uh, because it's it's an experience which I'm sure has... common threads um, across board, um, especially for um, what I consider to be global majority populations um, living in high-income countries like the UK. Um, A close relative of mine was diagnosed with with a chronic illness, which um, was managed um, surgically and then medically, um, both in the acute sector and then in the community. Um, However, the care they received was um, inadequate um, from the point of view of um, effectiveness, safety um, and I dare say cultural um, sensitivity. It it was sort of people, um, this includes health professionals, um, said they couldn't pronounce their names. Um, They were often referred to as the patient with the monkey god. We had um, health professionals saying, oh, brown people are smelly. Um, Unfortunately, something um, that I still hear to this day. Um, So um, as a result, um, the, the journey through their illness was made um, um, was was rendered considerably difficult, and I think what really stood out to me was the sense of feeling totally invisible. Um, we talk a lot about person-centered care, but um, in in this case, um, there was no person that was being cared for. There was a condition that was being managed, um, but um, managed with a lot of cultural micro and macro aggressions, some of which I've just mentioned, um, which made care receive um, the recipient of care 
both the patient and their immediate family caregivers, um, really questioning um, whether it may have been better not to have had care at all and, um, you know, just allow um, the illness to take its organic course. So this really stuck with me because I was the immediate family caregiver um, and in, um, motivated me um, to to um, sort of look at how I might change the system um, from inside in. Um, and I so then retrained as a nurse um, at a master's level from King's um, in, in London. I went on to do additional training as a specialist public health nurse. Um, and I worked um, across um, the inner London, inner and outer London boroughs, actually, um, across a number of disciplines, community nursing, district nursing, um, and then went on to lead the um, zero to 19 team for um, Kensington at the time when the Grenfell fire happened. And that was a great opportunity for me to to bring to to or, or to try and you know address those those micro and macroaggressions I had faced and ensure that the care we delivered was culturally sensitive um, and was actually talking to the whole person um, and addressing their needs rather than just a clinical focus. And that sort of spurred my interest to move into palliative care. Uh, mm. Clearly, mm. my strength, both by lived experience and professional experience. And um, my work in London is largely around um, promoting knowledge of palliative care amongst global majority populations um, and trying to understand actually what their death and bereavement systems are um, because unless we understand that with a sense of real cultural humility um, a real ethnographic approach um, I um, I believe that we cannot really touch equity uh, in its essence. Um, and we at Marie Curie are committed to, 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 pro to providing care for all, but providing equitable care for all. Equity is a big thing for us. Mm, thank you so much, Rekha. And obviously, you went through some, um, some your family experience, some really awful care, but it has uh you've turned that into um a whole new career subsequently um and Rini, this this is an area you look at closely what have you found are the barriers to good end of life care that that some communities can experience in the uk yeah i i'm just i'm really moved by um Rika's story and mm -hmm. um it resonates just to i mean just to start off it resonates obviously Rika and i are both are both racialized people 
um, we both have lived and learned expertise in this field. I'm not a clinician. I'm a, I'm a, a policy uh, professional. So I'm looking at um, how we can influence um, government at both uh, national, local and devolved nation level commissioning practices, um, uh, practice um, as well on the clinical side. So we, you know, that our, our colleagues in our caring services are invaluable in that work um, alongside everything else that they do, but providing the insights that they do, um, it, the, the value of that really can't be overstated. Um, mm. And what I've seen, um, kind of, I've I've been in end of life care policy for a number of years, and a common, I mean, it's been a persistent common theme for, I mean, decades in some of the research evidence base, is just how subpar, um, is probably the polite way of putting it, um, the care that uh, racialized people, minoritized ethnic people, um, face, um, in this country, and and that is across the life course. So what we what we'll see is um, end of life being a kind of the most acute crystallization almost of lifelong um, social disadvantage. Um, and it intersects. Well, you know, when we're talking about racialized people, it often intersects with deprivation, poverty in particular. So in terms of, um, you know, the barriers, Rake has touched on them. So when we talk about cultural uh, safety i i'm always really keen to reiterate that this is a this is a legitimate patient safety issue um this is not um a question of offense or hurt feelings this is a this is a this is a question of harm and um what we what we see in the research evidence base is repeated um stories like rakers um outright explicit implicit macro and micro level um discriminatory practice which is um obviously unacceptable um what we also see is um thinking about the kind of wider determinants of health in particular in relation to deprivation um how that presents at the end of life is really um really quite complex so um, we at Marie Curie um, in the past kind of 18 months have been um, have been working on our dying in poverty campaign. So this is looking at, um, you know, how people affected by death, dying and bereavement have um, already at the sharpest edge when they're when they're living in kind of acute poverty. And what we found is that if you're of pension age, um, you are twice as likely to die in poverty if you are racialized, if you're a minoritized ethnic person. Um, and, and that and that cascades um kind of earlier on in the life course. So if you're of working age, it's two in five people um will die in poverty if they have a terminal illness at working age. So we you know the the evidence base is really clear um as to what some of the what some of the challenges what we're trying to do is shift that narrative. So uh, you know, a good death is part of a healthy life course. Preventing a bad death um, has positive implications for immediate family, immediate loved ones, um, unpaid carers, and so on. And and at a more, I guess, at a more, um, for want of a better word, transactional level, um, preventing, you know, preventing bad death um, and what bad death can look like 
also reduces um, tremendous system pressure on our on our health and social care partners. So, for example, you know, the research evidence base is really clear that if you're deprived, you're more likely to die in emergency um, in emergency admission. So you're more likely to die in A&E if you're racialized that is compounded. So we we have research evidence that shows that if you're South Asian in particular, you're more like you're most likely to um to die in A&E. So by um by robustly kind of championing um the benefits and both from um a health outcome point of view, from a patient experience point of view and from a health economic point of view, um the the benefits of of community care of community based care um it really there really is nothing to lose um there's only there are only benefits to it there are only wins to be had so that's kind of a snapshot of some of the some of the barriers that um racialized people face mm, some really really shocking statistics there aren't there yeah and so so essentially um for a lot of people from ethnic minority communities it sounds like often there's just not the access to the services there and then for people who do access the services the care is is much worse so- yeah i think that's probably yeah it's probably like a simple summary of obviously or you know it's also really important to not um homogenize you know when we talk mm. about when we mm. talk about racialized communities we're talking mm. about significant um significant portions of of the population so as of recent census data we're roughly one in five in the country numerous different um ethnic backgrounds um immigration um history and migration status and so on so all of those things um need to be taken into account but in in very general terms yes the, the care received by minoritized ethnic people um is worse than their white counterparts and their access to that care um, is poorer and there are big questions um, that need to be answered around whether the models of care that we provide um, are appropriate. So is it appropriate to you know, admit someone into a hospice, for example, or um, when we think about the cultural practices of some racialized communities, is that the best place for them to be, for example? Where, you know, sometimes a hospice admission is seen as the gold standard, sometimes dying at home is seen as the gold standard. Um, so all of those things, like Rekha mentioned, when we're, when we're talking about personalized care are really um, critical um, to consider. Mm, absolutely. And Reka, I know that you've done um, quite a lot of research as well. Uh, does does what uh, Rene was saying, does that chime with what you found too? In our work with minority ethnic communities, we focused specifically on trying to understand what the barriers and facilitators could be. Um, And yes, access is a big problem. There is um, gross inequity to access. And I'll share with you a very poignant um, vignette that was shared by one of our participants in our community work. This lady, after attending our workshops, went to the GP because she had a member of the family who is palliative and um, wondered if the GP might refer her to hospice care and was told that hospice care is for the rich 
and that it may not be suitable for her because in any case, quote unquote, she spoke a different language. Um, So inequity of access is rampant. And what that means is um, also that when you face systemic racism, Um, And you're used to sort of um, a colonial memory um, and you are um, very aware of your language difference that creates a sense of diffidence, our lack of ability to self-advocate for ourselves. Um, This is quite pervasive. And as a result, like Rini rightly mentioned, um, 47% of Bangladeshis are come from the uh, most deprived populations in the country. 45% of Pakistanis come from the most deprived people in that uh, uh, um, in the country. So couple that. So couple your diffidence with poor socioeconomic background poor health literacy, Um, clearly, therefore, knowledge of palliative care is limited. Um, And that means that the very concept of hospice is culturally alien. Mm -hmm. I'm mindful that most hospices in our country are called Saint, you know, Saint Christian, Saint something or the other. How can a person from a global majority population relate to a saint if they are not, um, you know, if if that is not religiously concordant to them? That's one. Two, we found that most of these populations are um, family-based units. Decision-making is a communal decision-making. Death is really not a biomedical model that we like to think it is. And therefore, death is spoken in euphemistic terms because death is actually a psycho-spiritual process that happens in a social context. The fact that... um, there is pervasive institutional mistrust that they're aware of and they've cited to us in these workshop time workshops time and time again um the sort of racism that you know is is evident in our criminal justice system in our education system in our employment system and their lack of knowledge of the healthcare infrastructure means that they are less likely to advocate for themselves and their needs. I'm very mindful that research um, is uh, into palliative care um, needs a lot more by way of focus and a broad base of focus on the ethnographic lived experience of these populations rather than a cost-cutting healthcare uh, delivery perspective. 
the importance of ethnic concordance, language concordance, creates a sense of belonging and therefore creates a sense of trust. Rennie beautifully put it as safety, but it is essentially the sense of trust um, and feeling empowered enough to advocate for our needs. But there is also another very important strand which needs to be addressed. And that is the intracultural stigma that is rampant in these populations against illnesses, some illnesses specifically, those that are related to either mental health, cognitive deficits, or, um, for example, um, chronic debility like um, that um, of cancer or neurological disorders. As a result of that, there is a tendency to late disclosure. And that perhaps explains why, uh, or to some extent explains why, A&E attendances that Rini mentioned are high amongst these populations because by the time that they are presenting for for seeking help, it is a bit late in the day. Mm -hmm. But there is also um, the... um, Another sort of uh, lens on 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 A&E attendances, and that is that it's to do with poor health literacy, poor knowledge of what their illness is. So, I've done um, a, a eight workshops so far um, in North London, and we've had about a hundred and people, hundred and eighty people attend, just over a hundred and eighty people attend. And one consistent theme has been lack of knowledge of what their diagnosis and what their prognosis means. So a very good simple example is when someone is discharged home, they are sent with a discharge letter which is written in purely medical terms. It is a medic-to-medic communication with a list of medication which A, they may or may not be able to fully read or understand the import of. They don't know why this, so they don't know, for example, if I'm taking X drug, why am I taking it? What happens if I miss a dose? Do I need to take double the amount the next day or can I just go back to my usual dosage? These appear to be simple things, but put yourself in the shoe of someone who is not who, who is not very confident in English um, and is the main caregiver to a considerably frail person and does not quite know where to go and seek the answers or help from. That is the real poignant plight of this community. Caregiving in this community is is quite gendered, and we have to call it. There is a caregiving expectation that the family will provide care. And by that, it's usually the women in the family. But the women in the family may or may not have the knowledge, the skills or the support they need to provide caregiving. 
another very poignant thing that emerged from our from our um, engagement with these communities was that um, the lack of acknowledgement that is even present intraculturally within their own societies for caregiving. It's as if caregiving is an expectation and you're expected to do this regardless of the strain that it takes off you and on you. It's quite um, a nuanced kaleidoscope of, of a number of factors that act as barriers and facilitators. Absolutely. So many critical points that your research is drawing out there. Um, and clearly communication uh, is a really important area that healthcare staff need to think about improving, I think, from what you're saying. And so for nurses listening, and they might be in community, might be in end of life care, might be in emergency departments or in hospitals, what can they, what would you like them to do that would improve end of life care for such communities? One of the most important thing that I've learned um, is that of cultural humility, being open to be informed by and learn from the experiences, not just of the patient, but the entire family, because in palliative care, the family is also the patient. But across in healthcare itself, we know holistically that if we are to provide true person-centered care, well, the person is not in isolation of his familial and social contexts. So that's the first thing, an understanding um, a mindset that is open to learning and an understanding of difference that is humble enough to inform our own approach and behavior by that difference. Second, although the, there is a lot of value in um, focusing on medical management, and it absolutely is at the heart of healthcare, there is room for also, if you like, the more softer skills, those skills of communication, especially nonverbal communication, become acquainting ourselves with the, uh, the, the cultural, the religious systems of other or, or, or practices of the so-called other populations of the world, you know, the, what I call the global majority populations, I believe there is a real need in nursing education to, to talk about um, the import of culture and religion and how these cultural and religious frameworks impact health-seeking behavior, for example, um, in particular, but in general, how they impact individuals in their health decision-making. So, for example, one of the things that emerged from our work with the communities was they did not consider autonomy in healthcare decision-making as really life and death. They thought that 
these decisions can be made by their clinicians. Some of it, of course, is to do with their own poor health literacy. But that then is incumbent on the healthcare providers, nurses, doctors, to be able to assess and then to support with that health literacy. Like I said, discharges that are in simple language, nurses, um, when they are discharging patients, um, actually taking the time to sit with them to explain what the medication is for and what happens if they miss it, where can they find support if they have a question. So these things I consider to be soft skills, which are outside of, but yet integral to good healthcare delivery. So fundamentally very patient-centered and finding out what is really important and what the priorities are for that patient and their family um, is what I hear from that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and Rini, what is Marie Curie um, doing in this area particularly? We've touched on it already throughout throughout our chat, but what um, what work are you particularly focused on and what would the charity like to see happen on a national scale? Yeah, I mean, there are no, I mean, there are a number of different kind of programmes of work um, underway. What, what I will say from the offset is that whilst the evidence base on health inequalities, I think if you talk to any policy or research person or any um, research clinician, um, you'll know that a lot of ink has been spilled on health inequalities, but what hasn't happened is a lot of tangible action. I completely um, agree. And yeah. that's absolutely at the heart of it. We, we yeah. um, A lot has been said, but very little done. Whilst it is very important that the evidence base, in particular related to end-of-life care, palliative and end-of-life care, because that's where we see real paucity, thinking about things like language barrier, thinking about things like um, disproportionate carer burden um, is critical. But when we think about, you know, the, the, the population is rapidly ageing and rapidly in becoming more and more infirm so dying later in life with multiple conditions you know and that's why when we're talking why it's so important to not fall into stereotyping homogenization and um, healthcare providers complicit in that so for example assuming that um that oh they're they're um this person's children will uh, do the interpreting for me or will do the translation for me or will um, will advocate for that person and not signposting to the fact that they have these services professionally um, available um, that they um, that they have a right to those services you know this kind of it's all lazy it's a there's a deep laziness at the heart of it that whilst it is critical that um, healthcare professionals and um, those in you know, those in contact with people facing death, dying and bereavement are culturally humble, as Ray has rightly said. I also think it's vital that on the other side of things, that legal protections um, and the, you know, we, we've seen a number of new legal duties relating to tackling health inequality are robustly upheld for those reasons to capture those um, those among the workforce who, who, who won't be culturally humble, who won't be sensitive to these things. So, not looking kind of um, at a, a a broader or a, you know national level, 
there are a number of interventions that we're calling for. And I think at the heart of this, um, nothing is a silver bullet. It's really, you know, it's really important at the at the outset to say this. But at the heart of a lot of this is the funding settlement that the largest providers of specialist palliative care are under is deeply inequitable and unsustainable. So the largest providers of palliative end-of-life care in this country are charitable hospices. When we think about where hospices are located, it is no secret that they're often located in very wealthy, often very white parts of the country. The other um, kind of, I guess, flagship um, recommendation that that we've been calling for alongside our health and care um, sector partners is for cross-government action on tackling health inequalities. So what I mean by that is a strategy that that is inputted into by, for example, the Department of Work and Pensions, Department of Education, Department for Business and Trade, all of the different um, areas that we know affect health outcomes, employment, education, um, they need to be inputting into this because like I said before, you know, the 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 way that health inequalities present at the end of life, it, it's not it's not like um you know, the terminal illness isn't the um, isn't the isn't the thing that kicks that off. It 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 makes it more acute. It makes it more um, obscene. It crystallizes it for sure. But this isn't the trigger, for example, for people um, you know dying in poverty. That happens a lot further upstream in the life course. And what we're trying to do at Marie Curie is sh- again shift um, the you know long-standing conversations on this. So Marie Curie is clearly doing a lot of work in this area, um, which is fantastic and, and clearly much needed. When you talk, you hear the many, many layers of inequity that, that that's build up throughout someone's life. So that, as you say, by the time you get to end of life care, it's it's all those other layers of inequity have built up along along the way. And so finally, for nurses listening, Reka, what would your top three practical tips be that that could improve care in this area? I think the most important, like I said, is a sense of cultural and personal humility, Um, knowing that we are here to serve. That is the call of nursing, the call to service. Um, I think that cannot be forgotten. That is one. Two, to provide care which is holistic in nature, that means the patient, but also the caregivers around them. And three, that their communication um, with the patient and their family caregivers isn't nuanced by um, unreflected or not fully digested biases Um, and hence yes we get a lot of training on unconscious bias in our nursing training but a lot more needs to be done to encourage reflective supervision Mm. especially with a focus on um, our cultural biases because with 18 to 20 percent of the population um, being from global majority populations and um, a lot of nursing workforce themselves Mm. from global majority populations, it's 
really a call to self-reflect. Um, the best nursing practice is one which is informed in reflection, not just writing up a reflective piece for the NMC revalidation. It, mm. it needs to go beyond that. And palliative care is a growing field. Um, and in the next 20, 30 years, um, will take a position of prominence. So nurses interested in palliative care should be trained from, so again, nursing education, focusing on palliative care placements or on palliative care, introducing the concept quite early on. Mm. I remember my palliative care placement was a personal choice I made, not because it was an offer. So introducing the concept of palliative care quite early on in nursing education. Um, and if there's anyone who'd like to be mentored or would like some more support with thinking about this in their nursing career, I'm very happy to support them. Oh, well, thank you so much. And that's that seems the right the right point to close on here. But thank you so much both for sharing both your extensive expertise um, and experience for what I think was was a really interesting and important conversation. Um, so thank you very much. Thanks, thank Aaron. you. Thank you. Bye bye.